Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. On today's show, I'm speaking with Matt Hewlett. Matt is the president of Rosetta Stone, where he is leading their transformation from language learning CDs into its mobile-first future. Matt is part public company executive, part startup exec, and part turnaround genie. He has a dynamic record of raising venture capital from blue-chip firms like Sequoia, Allen & Company, and Intel Capital, with multiple liquidity events under his leadership. He was the president of the corporate travel division of Expedia, taking it from idea to billion-dollar worldwide leader in just a couple of years. He was also the entrepreneur in residence at Pioneer Square Labs. Regardless of what hat that Matt is wearing, he's the epitome of a change agent. Today, we're going to talk about transformation, turnarounds, and the importance of external innovation in the corporate world. So let's get after it. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Excited. I have to say, I enjoyed talking with you before we went on air. Uh, it was such a fun conversation. I'm excited to keep it going with uh, the audience here. And I, I've really enjoyed what you've done with Rosetta Stone. Uh, I'm an active user, though I have to say my Spanish is still uh, no bueno. I can attest that the new app and mobile experiences are really solid, but there's still some sort of learning to hack for me. I was joking with you that I have a two-year-old and yesterday uh, he was looking out the window saying, Ardia, Ardia. And I was like, no, no, Freddie, that's, it's a squirrel. And then my wife corrected me that he was saying Ardia in Spanish, which is actually squirrel. So uh, I still have some w- ways to go, but uh, it's, it's pretty incredible the journey that I've witnessed as a consumer of where you've taken Rosetta. Oh, thank you very much. And having your child as multilingual, bilingual is what a gift. It's a lot of fun. Though I'm, I'm now very motivated to, to learn Spanish because I do not want my wife and he to have a secret language uh, where I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about where you came in with Rosetta and what changes you've implemented? And uh, I heard in one of the, during the research, doing the research for this conversation, the idea of kind of moving it to this Pokemon Go of language. Yeah. And I do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of turnaround work that becomes growth work. And Rosetta Stone was and is probably the most rewarding experience I've had and this may be the longest winded answer to one of your questions yet, but on any episode is to me, if you can tie kind of your, your professional life to actually bettering the world from a mission perspective, that's bliss. And that's Rosetta Stone because really the company, its vision really is to make sure that anyone should be able to learn how to read, write, and speak with confidence. And so when I came into the business, it was a business that, that sort of lost its way the business hadn't really adapted, hadn't done digital transformation and really needed some work. And the core thing that I saw in the business and what attracted me to the business was the fact that no matter how little investment the company had done in the language division and the language group, there were some things that endured that were really special edges that you want to see in a business. You know, you want to, you want a competitive advantage and an edge that no one else sees. The first was the brand. You know, we have the best brand and education in the world. And asymmetrically, we weren't investing in it. And it still had high dynamic 
and relevancy in terms of brand awareness. So that was amazing to me. So I knew there was something there. And then two, the product itself wasn't really optimized to be digital, but we still had a lot of customers that loved it. And so that chalked me up to a story that I remembered when I started doing turnaround work, when John Mullally went to Ford and was asking where the Taurus was because they were showing John Mullally all the different products that they had and they didn't have the Taurus. And his response was, where's the Taurus? Oh, the Taurus is old and forget about it. And that story stuck with me. And when I went to Rosetta Stone, I was like, look, why don't we focus on the brand? Why don't we focus on consumer? And let's rebuild this business around this very unique perspective on how to learn a language, which is called immersion. So Fred, that's the longest winded answer you probably received, but that's some of the thinking that went behind the turnaround. That is not even close to the longest-winded answer. Uh, <laughs> the beauty of editing can make answers short. Uh, that was yeah. a great one. And I mean, look, I, as I was researching, and, and I experienced this, and, and I didn't tell you all this ahead of time, but you know, when I decided to learn Spanish, I tried all the, I'll call it startup uh, language immersion products that are out there. And some had some really interesting bells and whistles. And then I got really serious about it. And as a consumer, I said, you know, Rosetta Stone is... I know that they have the track record. They've been doing this a long time. And I remembered the giant yellow boxes with compact discs. Uh, and so that brand actually stuck with me and I signed up and, and have been using it. And as much as I was, I was teasing you, you know, my Spanish is coming along. I think what's interesting is I was researching this is it felt very blockbuster Netflix, except where you guys adapted. Because I'm thinking of these you know, giant yellow boxes, compact discs, and now the product is, is very mobile first, it's very digital friendly, and you can kind of pick it up as you want to, right? It's not rigid. Uh, and so can you maybe talk about how you came in and you get the existing team to buy into this need to innovate, right? To try new things and, and how you would kind of motivate people to make big changes. You got it. And I actually have an acronym for how I approach it because I used to always walk into companies and usually the company, there's a problem, like there's no strategy, we're running out of money, the board hates the CEO, whatever it is, there's a problem. Everyone hates everyone. And I often remember the Liam Neeson line out of Taken, I'm a man with a particular set of skills. And so this toolbox I would have, which was a slide deck, I just really started digesting it and making it more of a heuristic for people to think about is when I go into a company, I think about an acronym called T3PM. And it stands for TAM, timing, track record, plan, and momentum. And the first four of those letters, you have a one to three weighting. And then you multiply that by one to three, which is momentum, capital, and team. And so when I, when I look at investments, whether it's a professional thing as an operating executive or investment, I typically like to look through the lens of that because typically you'll find something that hasn't been discovered that the current team is already assumed to be true. And that acronym is helpful when you're trying to change the glide slope of a business. So if you're a cash cow or a dog in kind of classic Boston consulting terms or a star, like an early stage startup, you know what are those levers that you can pull to get to a market leader? And so when I came into the business, the assumption was, the business being Rosetta Stone, the assumption was the consumer business was dead because there was free offerings like Duolingo that were going to kill the consumer business and the price points would be basically going down to zero because there's no real marginal costs, incremental marginal costs in the software business. And the freemium model would be 
the de facto standard. Now, if I would condense 90 days of analysis into three sentences, I would say that wasn't true. And in most markets, follow Porter's principles of either your low cost or your premium. And those things can coexist. What doesn't exist is the messy middle of not making a decision. And so when you step back from that, the TAM is huge in language learning. And thank you for the kudos. We have a long way to go. And I think there's a lot more to do there. It's a $50 billion market. It's huge. Very small percentage of that is digital. So that's, you know, check the box. Yes. The timing, absolutely, people want to do more digitally. And there's huge offline to off online components. In education, I would say overall, there's very low digital penetration, which has certainly changed due to the pandemic. And then in terms of the, the track record, really the track record was good in the past, but not really good for digital. And then I kind of got into, I'll talk about, I'll address your question on team. And then the plan was, wasn't very solid. And then the momentum, that's the piece that needs a bunch of work. And so really you had like a, a good house with good bones. And so when you look at things that way, and as soon as you align around, okay, we're going to go consumer, we have a good brand, then you start building the strategy and then you start filling in the strategy with the team members. Some were net new and some were existing folks. And building up from that. And that and that's what we decided to do. And by the way, it's really hard to really change a business when it's a public company. A quarterly results, investors, you know, what have you done for me lately? One quarter that's good, you know, is good. And the next quarter that's bad is bad. And it's hard to have a conversation or a long-term thinking. So all of that aside, I think that that's how I thought through it. And thinking about digital transformation, a lot of times requires someone who's not currently looking at the canvas, someone who is looking at something in a different way. And that's some of the success there. But inevitably, I think that the Rosetta Stone story could be actually one of the biggest stories that we haven't even heard yet, because there's really no big brand in education worldwide. If you think about it, in higher ed, obviously the colleges are, but what's the biggest brand in education? Maybe you could think Scholastic in, in the United States. Maybe there's a couple others in Asia that are getting pretty prominent, but I think with Rosetta Stone, it's one of those great stories that's just starting to take off. And so I think the work that I did and really the team did, I just kind of directed them. We're just in early innings. I love it. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, I'll call it your unique entrepreneurial background. You've touched so many different types of businesses uh, and helped them both turn around but grow, right? And, And really unlock growth. But you mentioned that you 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 know you haven't been a sort of founder from scratch in a big way. Can you talk about your entrepreneurial mindset and and how that has served you, right? Especially at these large companies, because you talked about you know when you're public, you've got you've got to answer every quarter. And some of the things you're talking about are, are long term transformational changes. And just want to kind of understand a little bit about your your mindset and background as you approach these things. Yeah, this is a pro and a con, and we spend a lot of time as executives now thinking about balance and health and wellness. And, you know, I've done enough 360 sessions on myself to know exactly what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. I think one of the things that ever since I came out of the womb, that's been pretty consistent with myself is I'm impatient. (laughs) I have to find team members that are not only diverse in gender, ethnicity, age, et cetera, but also neural diversity in diverse because I cannot be around other people like me because you're, we're going to build a, you know, a, a business that, that really overheats. And so I try to find 
very calm people in certain jobs so that we can have a very good Socratic discussion. And I start with that because a lot of what I've done in my career is counterintuitive because I just like the team and the problem they're trying to solve. And if I was more strategic about my career, I could have stayed at Expedia for many, many years, for instance, and that would have turned out okay. I just like solving unique business problems. And so to answer your question, because I've been so impatient and because I like to look at a lot of things very quickly all the time, I have this pattern recognition on what I think can improve based on seeing, you know, I've been in all these verticals like entertainment, travel, I've been in marketplaces, microtransactions, freemium. I've been an actor in a lot of these verticals and it's enabled me to kind of get a, a spidey sense as to what needs to work to the point where you can't fool me anymore when you send me, you know, a 20 tab plus Excel deck, I will find the, the error. I can't do it myself anymore. But I, I will find that calculation that's incorrect or the thinking that's incorrect just because I've had that pattern recognition. So that is the busier I get and the more functions that I manage, actually, I'm, I'm better. I'm actually my worst as a true entrepreneur. If you sat me down and said, okay, Matt, we're going to work on this UX design today, I would jump out of the window. But if it's like, hey, we're going to well, focus on 40 things today and we're going to be swamped all day, I'm my half. And so that's why I seek out the jobs that I seek out. I know where I'm, where I'm good and I know where I'm bad. And I think that's important for anyone listening is they, they know their strengths and their weaknesses. In the case of turnarounds, you have to be impatient and you have to get results quick because you walk in and they, they start the timer. Okay, smart guy, let's yeah. see what you can do. And so I will not take an assignment if I think it's Lazarus although I've done a couple and not everything's been successful, but I will get a very specific plan done within 90 days. Absolutely. So I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's awesome. And I think there's such a, there's a challenge, right? It's when people think transformation, they all of a sudden, you know, there's the big gulp of like, oh, this is going to cost so much money. We're going to see no results for 18 months. And so I'd like that you, you dive in and start to get the plan rolling quick, right? And, and the, obviously the results take time from there, but... You talked about startup mentality, big company, and I, and I didn't get to it. And I want to make sure that I get to it. So when you're in a... And I go startup, big company, startup, big company every kind of three or four years. Right. So the question I ask people in big company environments, because after I've kind of listened to people for the last you know, 60, 90 days is, what would your decision be on insert here if you knew you're running out of money and wouldn't have a job in 90 days. Love it. And then people take me literally like, I'm going to lose my job in 90 days. And I'm like, no, 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 listen to the question. And so some of the things that I see consistently is when you're in a big company and you have EBIT and cash flow and you know you're not going to die today and you're not going to be disintermediated today is People get comfortable. And you know the things that drive me crazy when I'll talk to someone who's in a product or a customer support role is when I ask, hey, how many customers have you talked to this week? And they're like, well, I have a department that sends me the outtakes for that. I'm like, what do you mean? You, know, right. you should get to know a customer like the Gene Hackman speech in Hoosiers. When he mentions to the guard, I want to know the flavor. You should guard that person so closely, you know the flavor of that person like a stick of gum. And it drives me nuts. And I think the things that I see are the un, 
the startup folks that don't scale in some corporate environments, what they do get right is an intensity around a bias towards action and an ability to dig into details at any level. And that's what I try to instill in my team is be customer-centric, be data-driven, but don't build these organizations that have too many hops from the customer to the senior exec. I love it. You are the first guest ever to reference Hoosiers, which is my favorite movie. So I don't know, you you won some sort of prize off of that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't agree more on the sort of proximity to the customer, understanding that. I think that's that's often the greatest strength of a startup is because... You know, you mentioned the sort of what happens in 90 days if you run out of money. And we work a lot in between sort of large companies and startups. And the difference is, you know, the large company takes time and lays out the plan on how to build a parachute, right? And and the startup jumps out of the plane and builds it on the way down. They know that the ground is coming. And so they're less concerned with how it looks. They're just going to get that thing built fast. And there's there's learnings on both sides of that. And I think one thing that's interesting is we often joke at Venture Fuel that we we are bilingual in that we speak corporate and we speak startup. I think you should maybe launch a new uh, translation feature for Rosetta to connect those two worlds because they definitely are different languages. But can you talk maybe from your perspective, you've sat on both sides of those tables. How can large companies and startups benefit each other? How can they help each other grow? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think there's two partitions to that. One is how do you inject kind of the inorganic in, which I would say the inorganic in is like the activities that you do to inject, whether it's through corporate financing, startup accelerators, how do you inject new thinking inside the company? That's one way to do it. And the second is how do you inject kind of agile startup mentality into an existing organization? And I think the former is some of the the great work that you're doing that makes a ton of sense because in the first silo, the, the areas of where you work, you're creating an environment where it's almost okay for the corporation to look what's inside the test tube. And it's very safe. There's rails around it and it's okay as long as it checks a bunch of boxes. I also think that's a great way to bring in diverse talent, which is a challenge for a variety of different reasons. I'm very passionate about that work too. I think it's a great way to inject net new thinkers into a company. And that's just a, I call it inorganic because you're not cultivating inside the company. And I think, I think it's the fastest and easiest way to start getting the flywheel going on net new thinking. Now, the important piece to that, and you know better than I, because you see so many reps more than I do on this, is making sure that the company doesn't kill it. Uh, the white corpuscles don't kill this net new thing. And so, the same methodology that you think about with the work that you do in the first silo, I think you could also decide to and or that work in a big company. And that's that's the transformation work that's difficult. And the larger the company, the more difficult it, it takes. If I think about Amazon, they're probably one of the most successful startups in the world. And if you break down why, it's it's a culture that's set from the top. The, the longest... Uh, cultural values I've ever seen that I can't remember Amazon's, but it's very prescriptive. The teams are small, the classic um, two pizza box teams. And the attitude towards decision-making is decentralized so that the teams are engaged. And so I think those those premises are really good. I, I, I would say the, the, the fourth is something that I add because you have to be an API between your risk management and governance 
and your innovation. I think that's kind of the API that you're trying to bridge in both of those silos. And I think the the one I would add, whether you're inorganic, bringing in teams, investing, or cultivating bottoms up, is um, the API that makes sense for both parties as a stage gate and understanding you know, what's the null hypothesis that you're trying to achieve and what's the amount of investment behind it. And that can be, when presented well, net fun for everyone involved because inevitably it holds you accountable as the person trying to do the net new thing, whether that's a return on investment, whether it's actually hitting some kind of market share traction, whatever the levers are. And on the company side, you have a sense from the CFO across that this thing's being managed and we're not going to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on something that's not going to work. I love Matt's reference to Amazon as sort of the the largest startup. He talks about some of their values. It's actually defined. I thought I'd give you some of the the highlights of it. Uh, You can always find it on amazon.jobs backslash principles. Um, But they've got a couple that I think are just good to bring up to everybody. One, customer obsession. Two, ownership, right? The leaders should be owners in the business. Three, invent and simplify. Four, are right a lot. Uh, This is that they want their leaders to be correct, strong judgment and good instincts. Uh, The next one, learn and be curious. Next is hire and develop the best. Uh, This is sort of the idea of getting the A players and then bringing them up to A plus players. Uh, Insist on the highest standards, think big, a bias for action. Uh, Matt references this several times in this interview, and I also think this is the most important for larger companies. Frugality, accomplish more with less, uh, earn trust, dive deep, have a backbone, be totally comfortable disagreeing and committing, deliver results. And this is the big one. At the end, leaders focus on the key inputs for their business and deliver them with the right quality and in a timely fashion. Love it. I wrote down the phrase, flywheel on net new thinking. And I think you, you nailed it. And Amazon, obviously, right? They, they always try and approach each day as day one. There's so much there. And, and the most important link there is that API uh, between the CFO uh, and the innovators. And if those two speak the same language and get on the same page. It is exciting for both parties. And that's how you grow this and move it from uh, you know, a one-off startup petting zoo to something that can be transformational for the organization. Speaking of which, one of the things CFOs always ask us when we're working with them is, is to measure our results and, and really quantify this. I, I noticed doing research on this uh, that you have an insight score that companies can, can go and, and find out their insight score. Can you talk a little bit about that? And uh, I love yeah. that you described it as like a FICA score uh, for your yeah. business. Yeah, I struggle with social media and self-promotion. And I know you're, you're laughing. <laughs> you're on a podcast with me, yeah. Matt. Well, we'll help a little bit. Uh, you know, help a little bit. And I don't know. I think it's maybe like I'm from the Northwest. I'm fourth generation. We, it's really about working, not talking. And I, I struggled in my career when I first started out as moving from a product management kind of person to an executive when I was faced with businesses that were struggling. And at the time, I had no manual, no mentor, not anyone that could say, here are the things you need to do. This all started with this insight score when one of my investors, and this is a name drop, Mike Moritz of Sequoia Capital, handed me a slide deck, which some of your listeners will remember from the Web 1.0 days, it was called RIP. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. And it talked about preserving cash. And there was another one that wasn't quite right that another partner uh, issued during the pandemic was the second version of that. But the discussions I had with Mike about preserving capital cash flow, condensing your business down to the all the things that you start thinking about when you're in preserve mode. I didn't have anyone to talk to except Mike Moritz and a couple other people. And, and over the years, I decided that I would approach things in a way that always scored high in terms of results, but I'd start to codify it. And it was just a slide deck that I started to put together over the years that became a rubric for me to approach restarting companies. Matt references two unbelievable pieces of thought leadership writing from Sequoia, which is one of the largest uh, VCs in the world. The first is RIP Good Times. This was written back in 2008 uh, when the internet bubble burst and everyone sort of freaked out what, what would happen to the internet and all these startups that were, were slightly overvalued. And it is unbelievable document on how to spend money wisely and frugally, which was sort of uh, not in vogue at that time. Really, really set apart the sort of thinking that comes out of Sequoia. Uh, Then the second piece that he mentioned was actually Black Swan event, which was published in 2020, right as the pandemic uh, started to become recognized as what it would be in terms of its scope and its impact on business. Slightly less effective in terms of its predictive outcomes, but still an unbelievable great piece of writing that all startup founders should go see. Uh, And it comes down to what, what is also an Amazon sort of tenant and principle, which is Uh, how to be frugal, and how to spend money on the right things. And so I actually just finished today a manuscript that I sent to a publisher called Unlock, Five Questions to Discover Your Business's Potential. And in it is each section has uh, this concept of T3PM uh, that we discussed. And so, you know, the TAM, the timing, the track record, the, the plan, the momentum. And I did that because... I would not want anyone that's not a market leader. So anyone that has a unicorn should not read this book. You're doing just fine. But anyone else can read the book instead of paying two to $3,000 or more for a consultant to come in and tell you what you already know, you can spend a little bit of money uh, buying the book and walking through it. And the FICA score is free. It's on my site, startupwhisperer.com. And you can fill it out and get a sense of, of how you're tracking. The FICA score, like everything else, takes a lot of work. Like you want to do the work around strategic planning. But I do find that when you take the score, whether you agree with the results or not, it will identify whether you have hubris or not. And that hubris is some companies believe they can turn around anything regardless of like whether there's market headwinds, they don't have enough capital, they're not that smart, the strategy isn't good. And I won't drop any names, but I've worked for some people like that. And you know, we're talking about deploying capital and we're talking about people's lives. And I think there's two rules in business for me. Never have a, an engineer write code for a product that sucks and doesn't work and never waste investors' capital. And so this is my love letter to all those operators out there that they can, <laughs> they can go to the Insight Score and judge for themselves whether they have a shot. I love it. I, I think it's, you know, it's, Hey, I love the title "Unlocked." Uh, you know, one of the when we're promoting venture fuel, we always talk about it's a way to unlock growth. Uh, so I I love the title uh, just from using it myself. And I think just looking at those questions, it did feel like a great 
consultative set of questions, right? To make you think about your business, understand the areas you have to run. Um, so I think it's, it's awesome that it's free. And I encourage everyone to go check it out. I'll let you get out of here on this. My question for you is, what are you most excited about? And it can be around your book, uh, if you want to talk about that, or maybe frontier tech or emerging solutions. Just what what is it that's getting you out of bed and you go, man, I can't wait for this to happen in the future? Yeah, I have kind of three ways to answer. Personally, I'm excited about my wife's business. She's a CEO of a non-alcoholic beverage company. So it's an alternative, healthy alternative to wine. It's called Rock Grace, R-O-C-K-G-R-A-C-E. My wife's like always laughing that I'm the I'm like her best salesperson um, because it's a real problem, whether people have issues with alcohol or they want to live a healthier lifestyle. I just like, I think the market's huge and it's greenfield. That's answer one. Answer two is I'm excited about my book and working on it. And I've interviewed some amazing people as part of it, like the founder of Rovio of Angry Birds, the former CEO and uh, of Coach and Toomey, Lawrence Franklin, and many others. I'm really excited and humbled to talk to them. And lastly, typically my metric is, is if I look at a technology and I'm coming up with reasons why I can use it and other uses of that technology, I tend to like go deep in it. And I know like this is going to sound a little, a little funny because I'm maybe the last person to be talking about it is I'm obsessed with NFTs. Okay. And I just created my, my first NFT. I'm probably the last person that has done this, but I created an NFT the other day. And I, I had like, it was the same experience I had when I created my first YouTube video and uploaded it. And I was like, wow, what could this be? I could do education. I could do UGC fun videos. And I started making up things that this thing could be. And the whole idea of smart contracts, um, how this could change subscription software, like that could be going the way of the dodo bird. There's new verticals to go after. Even the, the art itself could be 4D and change over time. It just reminded me of that experience of like, this is a new medium. We're uploading the existing medium into this platform. I have ownership over this asset, which I didn't. You know, I have an iPad that has some old music that I downloaded like five years ago. I'll never see that again. You know, I want to own my stuff and that stuff is going to be very dynamic and and different over, over time. So yeah, I'm not super smart at it, but I've talked to a bunch of people that are, that are, and I I think there's just so much promise there. And and it's so interesting. It's interesting. It's my favorite part of, of what venture fuel does is we, we end up doing these strategy deep dives into emerging technology uh, to help companies understand you know, what is the space? Who are the best players? What's their right to win? And we're in the midst of two. Uh, one is on the metaverse overall, and one is on NFTs. And I've had the exact same reaction. At first, I was kind of like, I don't know what this is. It sounds interesting, like sort of like baseball cards. Yeah, I, I don't know. And as we've dove into it, sort of two things happen. One is the metaverse feels very much like the former Wild West. Like it is there's real estate, there's land, there's this ability to create, there's, there are people coming together in unexpected ways, doing collaborations that, you know, nobody could do in the real world that now has like a really interesting, unique piece. And it's all, you know, the underlying piece of all this is sort of blockchain NFT capabilities that are there. And it's, uh, it's totally fascinating. I don't think you're the last one to uh, have, have dove into it. I think you're, you're very much at the early stages of it right now. 
but it's it's really cool. We had a guest on that said to me that her kids no longer beg her for Air Jordans. They beg her to get skins, like Nike skins to put on their avatars. And that, that was sort of a moment that shook me into, okay, I need to pay attention to this because I know I begged my mom for, for Air Jordans for like 12 years. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting ready for my son to beg me about some sort of avatar skin uh, in the future. Yeah, I know I'm, I'm processing what you said and I, I think that's right. It's my kids are my, I have three kids. My, my youngest are the boys, 17, 11, but they're completely digital native and laugh when I play around with anything around, you know, crypto or anything. They're just like, and it's amazing how advanced and how fast the, the younger generation is. And so the other thing I leave you with, with NFTs is probably my best experience as a young person in technology was I was the real player product manager the comp- for real networks, the company invited, invented streaming. And that was a product that was the most popular non-browser product in the world. I mean, it was, it was the most popular. My product was being used by everybody. But what was the most exciting thing was not exactly, is what you said, it's the, the tentpole that we started with was, hey, we do a deal with ABC News or the Seattle Mariners. Not that anyone ever watches the Mariners. <laughs> but um, you have some branded content as a tenpole, and then that would drive kind of this this viral effect that we now codify as a coefficient effect. They get more players and they get more servers. But the more interesting thing was all the new use cases that came up that we never even considered. Yeah. And NFTs is like that. It's like you know Mark Cuban's riffed quite a bit about it publicly, but it's not. It's going to be even better than that, and I know it. And it's. It's just fascinating to me. It's one of those technologies where I'm just like, wow, what a digital backed asset that's going to create new, uh, on a new form factor, that's going to create new economies. It's just going to be so much more opportunity. And I, I, I'm just excited about it as well, Fred. Yeah, I think it's so fun. And uh, I know this isn't our, our topic, but I, I just read something about the Gucci's galleries that they've created, which essentially you go in as your avatar and you see all these different collections of art and it essentially creates a unique outfit for you based on the rooms you go in. Uh, so it's it's live, real-time creating sort of this custom Gucci uh, avatar skin based on the different historical artworks you go to see. So, I mean, if you think of it as a brand, it's like the deeper they go, the more custom and unique their outfit becomes, which then, of course, they're going to talk about more. And then, you know, as a consumer, it's like, oh, I've got this one-of-a-kind thing. So anyway, we could go on for a long time. Yeah. So Matt, where should people go to follow your work? Uh, I know you mentioned the startupwhisperer.com. Is that the best place to kind of track all the cool things you're doing? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse. Still trying to figure out how much time I want to allocate to Clubhouse, but I'm on on all the social webs. I love it. All right, cool. We'll we'll put it all in the notes and I greatly appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun. I had a blast. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please just hit subscribe. Also, be sure to follow us uh, on LinkedIn. It's at VentureFuel, all one word. We drop all sorts of info there, whether it is uh, nuggets from people like Matt on how to transform your business or insights on emerging startups and tech opportunities. You can just find it all at uh, LinkedIn, at VentureFuel. So until next time.